Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. This is actually a YouTube video that I had released out on my channel last week, but I want to release it to the feed here because it is so good. Um, so I'm not going to talk too much about the speaker, Robert Aubrey Davis, because I talk a lot about him when I'm introducing him for the YouTube video. So I just wanted to put it put this in here so that you knew you were going to be listening to an interview and there's a different introduction welcoming people to my channel and everything like that, which you're going to hear first. And then we're going to get into it with Robert Aubrey Davis, who is the host of the Millennium of Music program on Sirius XM and public radio stations. And we talk about Tudor music and how Thomas Tallis was just a really good guy and lots of other fun stuff. So enjoy and thanks for listening. Hey there, and welcome to the YouTube channel for the Renaissance English History Podcast. If you are new here, very special warm welcome to you. My name is Heather. I have been podcasting on Tudor England since 2009. This YouTube channel is where I put all my extra content, um, stuff that doesn't always make it onto the podcast, stuff that isn't always Tudor related, but always history related, book reviews, all kinds of fun stuff. So if you would like to have more history in your YouTube feed, why not go ahead and hit subscribe? And that way you'll never miss out on a video that I put out. So I, today I'm going to share an interview that I just did with Robert Aubrey Davis. And before I officially kind of give the spiel about who Robert Aubrey Davis is, um, I want to tell you who he is for me first, because he's a very special person to me. He hosts a radio show on Sirius XM called Millennium of Music. He also hosts uh, Broken Beyond. There's a couple of different Sirius XM shows. If you ever listen to Symphony Hall on Sirius XM, you have heard him, I promise, because he's just kind of everywhere. But first, people often ask me how I got into Tudor history. And I've shared this before. If you've been around me long enough, you know that the way I got into Tudor history was through the music, um, through singing Ave Verum Corpus, a William Byrd piece in Chamber Singers when I was in 11th grade. And I remember the choral director just said something offhand about how Bird was a recusant Catholic. And I was like, what does that mean? It sounds rebellious. And, you know, I was 16 and I thought I was quite rebellious. And so I went to the library and I looked it up and, you know, I learned that it meant it was a, a Catholic who had to hide their faith during the reign of Elizabeth. 
because she was a, a Protestant. And I started thinking about what it was like for Bird, especially to be writing music for a service that he didn't necessarily believe in, while at the same time writing these kind of sacred pieces for secret worship, because he wrote, you know, these, these Latin masses that were to be sung in, in private homes. Um, and something about that just really, really struck me. And that's how I got into to this period of history. And so my relationship with this period is, has always been through the music of Tudor England. Um, and so I have a very special relationship, you know, with, with the music. Um, and, and that's how my relationship has gone with it. He is, like I said, he produces and hosts Millennium of Music, heard on public radio stations, also Sirius XM. He also produces specials, including On Holiday, a series of five one-hour programs that explore the music and culture of different European nations. He is a frequent lecturer and commentator for arts institutions throughout Washington, D.C. He hosts weekly arts discussion program around town for WETA in the nation's capital. He is also a contributing writer to newspapers, journals, cultural publications, both nationally and internationally. After working in public radio for over 20 years, he became the program director for two channels on XM satellite radio, Vox, which was dedicated to vocal classical music from Gregorian chant through to opera, and The Village, modeled after the public radio program Songs for Aging Children, was a celebration of 60s folk music that Davis hosted for nearly 15 years. The Village is a unique gathering of singer-songwriters across generations. So that is who Robert Aubrey Davis is in the world. You should go to his website, Millennium of Music. Say that 10 times fast, millenniumofmusic.com. Like I said, there's tons of free stuff on there. You don't have to subscribe, but you also can subscribe. Um, it's very reasonable to get like the full archives of everything. He's fantastic. I could listen to him talk forever and ever and ever. Um, I like could just get like a, somebody should just make like a, a recording of just him talking about all of this stuff. He's so brilliant. He has said that he will come back and do another um, podcast with me. Hopefully it won't take eight years. So if you would like to have him come back, please leave a comment and let me know whether you have like questions for him, what you would like for him to talk about. If you enjoyed this interview, would love some feedback so I can take it back to him and say, hey, people enjoyed this and they want us to talk about this, this, this next time um, or listen to you talk about this, this, this. So thank you to Robert Aubrey Davis um, for, for coming and please check out his website. And now we're just going to jump right into him. All right, here we go. I'm so excited. Oh my gosh, it's been like eight years that I didn't know if you were real or not. And here you are. I'm, I'm not really real. This is, no. I, this is part of the chat GPI version of me. Yeah. Okay. So you're like actually a hologram. I am indeed. Like yes. Yeah. AI version of you. It took all the money in the world to create this hologram, but you know, it was worth it apparently. Oh, so yeah, yeah. You did it just for me, huh? I totally, and I also voice your, your, uh, your ways, directions when you drive around town, I can do any of that. That's how it is. Wow. We got to plug that at the end. Okay. Yeah. So how, let's just start the, the, the big question. How did music, how did the musical changes of the 16th century reflect the cultural changes? There was a lot going on, religious turmoil, printing presses, lots of the, the reformation, the Renaissance, and in England, the religious whiplash. So just looking at England, starting at, say, 1485, if we want to start at the beginning of the Tudor period to 1603, like, how did the musical changes reflect what was going on in society, would you say? Well, you know, 
It's funny how art is, and it's funny how we characterize these things. Uh, we tend to go by these arbitrary periods that we assign, mostly for later on's benefit, never for the time itself. And if, if you sort of think, uh, you see this Tudor period very much from the uh, various machinations that occur geopolitically. Uh, but there's also an argument that much of art comes out of a more stable, rooted, ongoing evolution uh, or just process of, you know, the living day-to-day -day of the universe. I mean, there's a, a wonderful meditation that uh, you could have lived in England your entire life of the Hundred Years' War and never seen a single battle or heard of one. Uh, and it's, it is very specific how the impact on people, on the citizenry, is based on these various changes and what happens. Um, and England is a unique uh, event. I mean, it's, it is different from anything else. Great Britain, because, you know, this, this sceptered isle, uh, this, this, this emerald jewel, this place that is uniquely separate from the continent, evolved musically differently, and it evolved spiritually differently. And I think just like we tend to arbitrate, I mean, it's weird when you see there's a different period for, say, painting than there is for poetry than there is for music in the subsequent academic worlds. That's not the way the real world works. All these people talk to one another. All these people know one another. And the idea that we can separate out what, what occurs, you know, musically as an evolution from not just the geopolitical, but what England is, what the nature of this, you know, this amazing land and how it evolved was. And I think there are arguments to be made that it is much more, you know, there's sort of like you could sort of skip the continental world because the way music evolves in say Italy or France is very different from the Holy Roman Empire and England in which you have a sort of rooted uh, and very possibly more earthy and a very often more isolated, creative pocket type of world. Uh, so before we even get to the time of the Tudors, you have a, a few patterns that evolve. You have a musical evolution that's different from the continent. And you, you know, there's a very famous French ambassador who wrote what he called the Du Serangevin. And it was an idea that English music was sweeter. There was a sweetness to it. Um, it used different intervals, you know, we, you know, all of music that we sort of think of as Western is based on the Louis Louis chord progression. Da -na -na, da -na, da -na -na, da -na. So it's one, four, five. And England used a lot of thirds and sixes. And you have that most unusual quality to it. Part two is that the way uh, England has always been fascinated by Italy. And historically, the relationship artistically and musically is profound. And this goes back, and this is very important for what evolves in Tudor music, to 
both the Franciscans, the idea of, uh, you know, Francis's idea that we need to make uh, music more accessible and more of the people. And he took sacred works that were in Latin and made them into the vernacular. Um, and that idea gets to both the Franciscan and Augustinian monasteries that dot all of Great Britain. And from thence, we get the evolution of what had been a dance form, what had been a dance form that would have been very much uh, what we think of as pagan, uh, the carol form. And we have this round dance that eventually get, and it was for all, there, we have carols for all kinds of things, uh, springtime carols and the like. But when it gets to be for Christmas, uh, we can actually pick specific Augustinian and Franciscan monasteries where specific carols come out. Of. Really? And these specific tunes, some of which we still sing. When you, you know, as you know, the Shearsman, a uh, beautiful song that we, we still sing at Christmas time from that, that particular mystery play. Uh, and on and on and on, these things become part of a web of musical life that every composer is born into. It is fortunate that when the Tudors evolve with, you know, Henry VII, we have one great figure who arises. And this, this is kind of like the great, you know, person theory of history. We already had one extraordinary composer, John Dunstable. Um, and he was there for the earlier Henrys and uh, the miserable Richard and, and on and on and on. And, by the way, Richard III is not a good person, so don't don't listen to all the rhetoric about it. It's just not there, you know. Sorry, uh, but uh, the uh, the musical scene, when it wasn't encouraged in court, would then go to specific centers like John of Gaunt or whatever. Would would have been a very good example of someone who preserved music and and funded musicians for specific reasons. And so you have this body of composers that begin to come about with the one titanic example of being John Taverner. Taverner is the really overarching figure. And while he was, you know, uh, he received commissions, but his music was respected and it was respected in a way. And, you know, this dynamic tension between what happens, uh, of course, it already happened in the rest of Europe, but what was going on then with England under Henry and the, the abandonment of Catholicism. But Taverner, the, the important thing to remember is that when any composer, and when I say any composer, I mean every composer you can name in the Tudor era, wrote variations on a theme called in nomine. Now, this is a section of a mass, right? It's uh, in the name of the of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And the particular tune comes from Taverner's Mass, the Gloria Tibi Trinitas, which is a specific Catholic doctrine piece. And every single one of those Reformation composers who set that piece knew exactly where it came from and why. So while we are leaving behind in many cases, you know, the idea that we can't be Catholic, um, that hum, that 
drumbeat never leaves. It never leaves under the subsequent mess that happens with the Jameses, of course, with Charles's, with the vast, you know, explosion with the attempt to re-put the Stuarts on the throne, when the Hanoverians take over. Uh, and then, you know, the rebellion against the Hanoverians is genuinely kind of in the 19th century. And then you sort of see this return of Catholicism in England. And the weird statistic where apparently there are more Catholics in England than Protestants today. So this is this bizarre dynamic. It never changes. It never goes away. For all the countervailing murders and killings and Bloody Mary rhetoric and all that stuff, there's a huge body of work, by the way. And, he, and I, this came to me, this is specifically through music and no other place, uh, of defense of Mary Tudor and how she was not only a far more enlightened monarch than many people give her credit for, but that her, her reign was much longer, of course, than, than people genuinely know. They just sort of think about, well, that was a bad bit. Let's get rid of her. Uh, but the work she did with her artists and if art is important to one, and if art is sort of the conveyance of this, and the composers she worked with and she supported, in the case of Thomas Tallis, of course, who lived on, um, it is an extraordinary thing to think about. You know, here she's put to death by her cousin, and then lo and behold, the cousin makes sure that Thomas Tallis is the most single honored person in the artistic court. That is to say, all the arts. That is to say, of all the poets and everything else, Talus was the person. Uh, and Talus is the specific and direct inheritor of John Taverner. Mm. Note for note, you know, treated him as the master. And the way that William Bird, who's, you know, we're very happily celebrating this year because the front of the anniversary. Yeah. yeah. And there's, and that is to say, everyone, including I just got a note there from Graham Ross at Clare College. And, uh, every single, you know, person who does recording and is working today uh, is doing a, a, a William Byrd. Uh, the King Singers have a new one out, on and on and on. It's kind of fun. Yeah. But it's also importantly good because it reminds everybody, I think if you dig into what happens with Talis and Byrd, you have as good a window into the Tudor era as any single thing you can put your finger on. There is no better way, with the very possible exception of theater and its evolution in this time and what happens to it, to really understand this era than with these two characters. Now, so for somebody who doesn't know Talis and Bird and doesn't know when you say when you understand what's happening between them, like, I, I don't know that much either about their person. I know Bird they say was a recusing Catholic and wrote these masses um, in Latin and Thomas Tallis. I've heard him referred to as Teflon Tallis because he made it through all the different monarchs unscathed and they had a publishing business, right? The queen gave them the rights to publish. Like, tell me what was going on. So Tallis, for all, all, the most important thing to know about Thomas Tallis is, is that, and there are very few people in the history of art that are this. He was a lovely human being. 
There, this doesn't exist. Uh, and, you know, there's, there's a famous good cover study back in the 50s, Born Under Saturn, where they take every single artist who's ever lived and they show how cuckoo crazy they all are. Yeah. But uh, what is his tombstone there uh, uh, in Greenwich says, uh, here lies Thomas Tallis, who died as he had lived of meek and gentle sort oh lucky man and it is just an extraordinary thing to think about this below i mean there wasn't a single negative piece of press wasn't a single negative comment there's not a single dot that says anything negative about thomas Tallis, who was literally a practicing catholic his entire life so with the various machinations that occur geopolitically he didn't just publish music he had, from the Queen, this is Elizabeth, gave him the rights for the exclusive publishing of anything in England that was musical. That is to say, if you wanted anything in print, you had to go through this guy. Uh, now, the history of publishing in, 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 of all types, but particularly music, is fascinating and gives you a tremendous window into art and commerce and everything else you can imagine. But was it Pallister was because I had read that he was partners with Bird for a while. Did they have something together jointly or no? Now remember, uh, Talis, who's about 1500, 1585. Right. Bird was his, his student, his pupil, and, and, and a beloved pupil. And on Talis's death, Bird wrote one of the most beautiful laments in the history of music. And every single person who met Bird. Either wrote or said something about him that was one of these tributes. And it wasn't a pro forma tribute like after Louis XIV died, we all had to write something. Or indeed, after Elizabeth herself died and everybody wrote something. And these pieces are extraordinary because everybody realized that this will never come again. Artists are smart than, smarter than one might imagine. And when you see... Uh, Pompkins writing a sad pattern for these distracted times after Elizabeth's death. You know he knew. All these people knew that this can't happen again. You can't have this. This this will never be. Uh, you know, all Shakespeare getting out of the game. I mean, you know, he muddled on and wrote some extraordinary and powerful and terrible things. Terrible in the in the original sense, uh, like Macbeth, but. It is literally the end. I mean, it's the end of the world as we know it uh, with the death of Elizabeth. And uh, uh, everything changed after that. You know, there are moments uh, and rebirths and the this and the that. But when people say that, you know, they, they, they call British music in the 20th century, the 20th century English Renaissance, because, you know, there is Henry Purcell and there are some people here and there dipping and dopping and but really and truly, it's the end of the 19th century before we really get the renaissance of music from the time of Elizabeth. So Talus's wisdom, his grace, his gentility, his humility, the exquisite nature of his writing, his music is incomparably beautiful. I mean, truly incomparably beautiful. Uh, there's not a single chorister and these, you know, when you sing in English choruses and tens and tens of thousands of people do uh, and have and have been trained, 
you come to the Lamentations of Jeremiah, of Thomas Tallison, everybody likes it. Everybody wants to sing it. Everybody wants to do that piece. So this exclusive publishing experience continues through Henry and what happens after Henry's death and into Elizabeth and substantially into the, you know, 1585 is pretty far along in the game. So William Byrd comes along. Now, Byrd is a different figure. He is not a Talus-like guy. He is, uh, you know, there are the sort of the famous, there's two kinds of geniuses. Uh, uh, there's the Wagner type who can do the one thing. And then there is the, uh, the Brahms type who can do anything. And so, you know, the universalist piece is, is Byrd. And he could write in any form, wrote lots of chamber music, a lot of broad keyboard stuff that's still performed today all the time. Uh, wrote uh, consort pieces, wrote secular and very witty, very hilarious, sometimes body songs. Uh, but he had as part of the ongoing process throughout all of the uh, Christianized world, when there was the Reformation, there were still practicing Catholics that had to hide themselves away. And when you go to the if you do the stately home tour of England or whatever, and you see the priest holes and all these little corners where this is kept, um, you would have these places where you could do uh, sacred services in the Catholic tradition. And what Byrd did is he had a body of pieces, uh, exquisite writings that were for the entire church year, as well as the three famous and glorious masses. And I remember one time uh, Peter Phillips of the Talus Scholars did a thing for me uh, where he said, you know, we, we, the best way to compare and contrast this is to hear the credo from the Mass for Three Voices. And about the same time, he wrote a version, you know, I, the I Believe idea for Elizabeth for the Anglican service. And he said, listen to these two. And here the difference between a private and interior spiritual meditation and a public expression. And see the difference. You can actually hear the difference in how these two things can compare and contrast. And he kind of paints this for you. And you can really hear it in Bird's writing. Now, Bird, of course, you know, as we celebrate this front of the anniversary, anybody can hear him and enjoy him, and there's no need for a window in. There's some special, I'm hearing something unique and profound because, you know, there are tunes that we still whistle and hum. And, oh, you know, there's a, there's a band setting, uh, Gordon Jacobs had a hilarious band setting of a bunch of bird tunes and on and on and on. So there's, there's that. Um, and then there's all, you know, Glenn Gould did a bird recording for piano and on that stuff. So there's all of that stuff. Uh, but. To do Thomas Tallis, you're doing a very specific and a very different message. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But publishing is hugely important. I mean, this is not a joke. I mean, this this is uh, not just a uh, a filter. It was also if you've ever you ever worked with an editor. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Then you know what it's like working with an editor. So it's like that too. Uh, but Bird had buddies, and you know, many of these buddies, some of them were. You know, the poets were often killed if you were Catholic. The musicians kind of survived if you were Catholic, you know. But if you were like Dowlin, you're trying to get a gig, 
and Elizabeth for reasons nobody knows didn't think this brilliant, you know, deeply weird guy would be the person for a boot. And so he converts and, you know, then he goes to freaking Denmark and gets jobs and eventually comes back. And he, when he finally gets hired by, by James, puts right in music. Right. Lives mm -hmm. on. Why do you think that the Catholic tradition stayed for so long in England and that and the, it developed differently than, say, I guess I wonder because the Reformation in England was so different than in Europe. Obviously, everything oh, yeah. is a unique thing, but how Henry yeah. never really wanted to become a Protestant. He just didn't really want to have a boss. And then all of this whiplash with Edward and the stripping of the altars and then Mary and back and, and then Elizabeth and the settlement. Like, what do you think out of that became, made it so that some of these traditions that were so, that if if you knew that they were Catholic, that, that people could continue writing like that without being punished? How how did that come about? Well, I I think it, there's, there's two things. First, I think we can never overstate the uh, remarkable choices Elizabeth made. I, I think, you know, in terms of the great woman theory of history, uh, you know, yes, there were mistakes and yes, there were oddities and yes, there were this is and that's and yes, she did some bad things. But you have to remember that she is against a titanic force. And, you know, the titanic force is not just, you know, Philip II and what's going on in Spain. And the probability of invasion, and you know, when when Mary was Mary Queen of Scots was, was alive, uh, and you know, there were there were Italians everywhere for the very specific reason that, like I say, the English had this enormous affection for the Italians, and all of them brought Italians into the court. Now, to his credit, musically especially working with both William Cornish, the elder, and William Cornish, the younger. Uh, the elder worked for Henry VII and taught the young Henry VIII. Henry VIII was a very good musician and a composer of a very high order and uh, was a very artistic young man. And yet uh, he, when he becomes a monarch, fell in love. Now, yes, Erasmus had a lot to do with that. But the whole, you know, the whole Flemish universe suddenly comes into court. And there's these hilarious songs. I mean, Where Does Jolly Rudderkin by Cornish, which is a very popular tune later set by Rayfon Williams. Well, this, uh, this is the Dutch who, before the Dutch came in, the British could not brew beer. They only made ale. And it was under the Flemish that they came in and showed these freaking English people how to actually make decent beer. That's a true story. And I care about this. This is a topic I'm deep in. Forget about music. We can talk about beer and I, that's a different podcast, but never mind. So, but it was, even then we start getting these Italian families and Elizabeth, even though they're, she's surrounded by Catholic enemies trying to overthrow her, brings in this huge collection, not, you see names like Thomas Lupo and all the Cooperario, he changed his name to be more like an Italian. He's John Cooper because Giovanni Cooperario, because everybody was Italian who was cool. The cool kids were Italians. Uh, Talos would never have written his 40 voice motet if Strigio 
hadn't come there with an Italian choir and done a 40 voice piece. Wasn't which, it like that or something that they that they said he couldn't do one the the same after having heard that Italian one? Well, I don't know to what extent he saw it as a challenge as much as an inspiration. And I think it was a specific inspiration that followed. And of course, Strigio's actual original, which has been beautifully very recently recorded, uh, it'll be on Millennium coming up, one movement on it. And this is not 40 voices like there's 40 singers. These are 40 individualized voice parts, each of which is different. One movement of that mass is for 80 voices to show he could, yeah. to show it's possible. So what Talus does with the Speminolium is take this. Now, it, it's not something, it's a little like uh, how many horsepower can a car really have? Mm -hmm. It only have so much, and it really doesn't look well anymore. And it's a little like that with voices, too. That's why there are no 199 voice motets or anything. You know, it just, you know. However, when a great genius can tackle something like that and turn it into something, I mean, I'll put like that Speminolium by Talus is better than the Strigio Mass. It's just mm -hmm. better. It's a better piece of music, you know. Uh, and although the Strigio is incomparable and extraordinary, but, you know, he's actually, Strigio, by the way, is way more fun as a composer, by the way, of madrigals that were hilarious that the a lot of the Brits loved. I mean, Morley, Thomas Morley and Wilkes and these guys thought this was hilarious. And the King Singers very famously do one of the Strigio pieces that was done for Queen Elizabeth that involves a card game where they actually play cards on the stage to show how the game works. Oh, how funny. Yeah, so that, that kind of stuff. It, and the Italians give... Because the Italians are, you know, banging on the door of what's to come musically. They are banging on the door of what we think of as what we horribly call Baroque music, which is a nonsense term. But these consorts and this musical scene, this liveliness, this bedness, this stuff, which they keep bringing in, even though you're just like, you know, sleeping with the enemy of your Elizabeth, you're bringing in these people from these. You might know didn't bring, she didn't bring in tons of Spanish composers. Right, right, right. And with the recent unpleasantness between England and France, we don't have much French connection. Mm -hmm. But the Italians, oh, yes, love these, these Italians. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's so, kind of fun. I could listen to you talk all day. And I will. And I, 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 I I'll come back. To, okay. I want to be mindful of your time. So here's my question to you. I have um, infinite. I, I'm never going anywhere. You're not, well, and you're a hologram too, so I can just That's tap That's true, in. exactly right. Yeah. Um, so if someone is is new to learning about this kind of music or listening to this kind of music, where do you suggest they start? And I would posit that part of that would be listening to Millennium of Music, and where can they do that? Well, that's very sweet. I mean, millenniummusic.com, just go online, and we have hundreds of free programs you can hear, and we've done, you know, Many, many, many hundreds on on English music uh, of all different stripes. But I would also say, uh, like Kenneth Clark says, it's the golden thread. Find the one thing that seems to be moderately interesting to you personally. And that could be everything for what are these weird instruments or what is this idea of, I mean, you know, we all think uh, sitting down and playing our guitar and singing is a great thing to do. 
what are the roots of that and where does that come from and why and why are some of these english composers so important in the evolution of i mean there is an entire body of music that evolves in france under louis the 13th that we can say kind of comes out of people like dowlin and this idea of sitting down with a lute and singing along these tunes are fantastic this is why sting did an album of nothing but john dowlin and to interview sting his people made a list of every single person who'd ever done a dowlin album and asked how many of those people i can say i knew or have interviewed and i uniquely had interviewed every single one of them, except for Alfred Deller, who I did know, but of course it was before Millennium of Music began. So that was kind of cool. So Sting was stuck with me. Uh, he was uh, trying to make sure that album became the best-selling early music album of all time. It became number two after the recording chant. But that's a, that's a, a different thing. Uh, but in the meantime... Everybody gets fascinated by something and you, you don't have to learn anything. It's the, the great thing about music. It's the ambient sound. And the other thing about English music, it can be body and hilarious. It can be descriptive. There's an entire recording of nothing but settings of the prize of London from this time, which is extraordinary. And some of these are fairly short and some of these are very long, but it's when you walk through the streets or you hear Shakespeare or go to a play. And you see these street criers calling out what's happening. This is all set to music. And there are recordings of that. And there's the most beautiful and profound sacred pieces. I mean, there's a universe there, just like there's a universe in everything we're doing. I mean, there's a, this new movie about Catherine Parr is a, a taking Cannes Film Festival by storm. Because people never tire of what you do, Heather. Just like they never tire of you. And I will never tire of you. So uh, I am so grateful to have had the chance to talk with you. It only took us eight years to get this going. So it won't take us eight years to do another one. Well, I actually was sort of looking forward to 2031 when we get back together. Wait for that. But Uh, what I could say is is your your Titanic audience uh, who, and they're so Titanic, the iceberg lettuce, as I say. But yes, your Titanic audience uh, should... uh, um, write questions to you and then you next time i see you you say well you know lurleen in teaneck new jersey wants to know this and then we will answer that question let's do we'll do like a little q a with robert Aubrey davis yeah, yeah and people should go to millennium of music and get a subscription and learn more as well too. well there's a bunch of stuff for free and you know it's just it's just uh it's clearly the labor of love, this stupid show, uh, because as opposed to you who've gotten rich beyond the dreams of Croesus doing all of your work with the uh, Tudor Mutant, Tudor England and all of that, uh, in this case, it's just, uh, it's for it's for people to have a place to go that, and, and it has been a great haven. That's the one thing about all of this. It's a, it's a great haven as well, you know. You're smart and you have a sense of humor, which is perfect. It's all to entertain you. If I'm not entertaining you, my work here is just beginning until I get better. I need to be better. My philosophy is it's all about entertaining Heather. And if I do that, I, my work here is done. That's I am the center of the universe. So, well, in my mind, you certainly are. I assume everybody else needs to be like that. You know, right. we'll get there. Absolutely. All right. 
Um, thank you for your time. I'm going to edit this and I'm going to get it put up and I will let you know what the questions are and the response. And hopefully you'll get a, a lot of hits on your website then. Oh, my greatest hit is being with you. And don't edit this stuff out. This is the fun stuff. This is the stuff people really want to see. No, they, don't I see they don't want to see bloviation about, you know, uh, music and in uh, the time of Henry VII. They want to they hear the fun stuff, you know? I have noticed that I get the most comments on my YouTube videos when I talk about the most random, unrelated stuff that's not at all related to history. So I will leave this in. Um, but will you come back again sometime before? I, it, I'm hoping tomorrow. Okay, great. Right. That's what I that's what I want, you know. So, uh, that's how it goes, you know. All right. We'll see how that goes. Um, I will let you know. Thank you. I appreciate you so much. You're and wonderful. Happy birthday. Oh, well, that it was, was a little It was a little while. I know, but we keep trying. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. All right. I appreciate you. Thank Call you. Call me anytime. I'm there. Okay. I'll see you. See you. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.